You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Everybody, um, thanks for coming on a very hot Sunday afternoon. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the lands on which the M Pavilion is situated, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to other First Nations peoples here today. So, my name is Justine Clark, and I'm very pleased to be here to chair the first session in the Making Home program. The program is convened by Tanya Davidge, so Sophie Dyring and Sam Donnelly. Tanya was meant to be here today in, in the chair that I'm occupying, but she's at home isolating right now. Um, she tells me she, that all, they've all tested negative and she'll be out tomorrow. So for the rest of the Making Home program, you will be uh, graced with someone who actually really knows the content and has put her heart and soul into organising these events. Um, but uh, today we've got four fantastic speakers who will, I'm sure, um, uh, make up for my lack of knowledge of the topic. <laughs> anyway, so Making Home draws attention to the growing house housing crisis that is placing older women at risk of homelessness, and it examines research and initiatives that aim to address this crisis. Uh, many of us know that women over the age of 55 are the fastest growing cohort of homeless in Australia, and current research estimates that more than 400,000 women over the age of 45 are at risk of homelessness. This housing insecurity has been compounded by decades of rising house prices, which have driven up rental costs, insufficient funding, investment in public housing, increasing inequity, and the casualisation of the workforce, which in turn creates insecure and uncertain working conditions. In addition to all of this, we know that the pandemic has impacted women significantly harder than it has impacted men as groups. So today's discussion, as I mentioned, is the first of, I think, four. Um, and today we're looking at the issues faced by older women at risk of homelessness from a personal, social and human rights perspective. We're going to unpack the factors and the policies that have created this crisis and outline pathways for advocacy and action. Um, and then on Tuesday, there's a session convened, I think, by the um, City of Melbourne that looks at alternative housing models. And then on Friday, uh, on, on Wednesday, we've got a parlour salon, which, which I'm um, looking after, which has two women actively involved in um, housing from different perspectives. And then on Friday, a session looking at design and the design, oh, design for, goodness, I should know this. Designing homes for older women at risk of homelessness. And Tanya will be there for that. There's drinks at the end. I think everyone should come back um, so we can share the end of what will have been an amazing week of events. So we have got an excellent panel here uh, to help us examine the issues. I'm going to introduce them all quickly now and then we'll um, have some short presentations and then discussion. There's going to be time for um, audience questions. So please, as you're thinking, as you're listening, you know, we're a nice, small, inter intimate group, which I think means we'll be able to have a really great conversation. So please do um, 
uh, you know, put some questions away in your head for asking at the end. So, our special panel, Joe. Joe Waite is a Melbourne queer-based artist, illustrator, and writer, and owner of a really fabulous shirt. <laughs> she's worked in comics and community arts for more than 30 years. In addition to publishing her own comics, she's curated group art exhibitions for the Melbourne Fringe and helped run an art gallery in Brunswick. From 2007 to 2012, she was part of The Comic Spot, a fortnightly radio show about Australian comics on 3CR Community Radio. She's been involved with the Sticky Zine Shop and Squish Face Studios, Melbourne's only dedicated comic open art studio, which sounds fantastic and I'm going to tell my daughter about. Um, she is stu as a studio founding member, she's participated in exhibitions, public drawing evenings and talks by women comic artists as part of the Ladies Drawing Auxiliary, another thing I want to know more about. Uh, from 2016 to 2017, she was the State Library of Victoria Creative Fellow, and at that time, she also experienced homelessness. Um, so I'm sure you have many stories to tell. Dr. Kay Patterson. Dr. Patterson was appointed Age Discrimination Commissioner in July 2016. She's telling me to shorten her bio. It's really amazing. I don't see how she can possibly have done all this, but she's incredible. Um, and she's... <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, elected to Senate in 1987, she pursued throughout her parliamentary career concerns. Um, see, now you've made me shorten it, I can't quite make sense of it. <laughs> Teaching psychology to health science students in the 70s, she developed an interest in gerontology and expanded the undergraduate programs in human development to include the study of ageing and co-developed the first postgrad diploma in gerontology in Victoria. Then, elected to Senate in 1987, she pursued these interests throughout her parliamentary career, both as backbencher and cabinet minister. Older workers, elder abuse and homelessness are her priorities in her current role, um, and she served on a number of non-profit boards as an honorary fellow of Monash and was appointed officer of the Order of Australia in 2016. And she likes to rearrange the furniture. <laughs> Dr. Kate Rayner. Kate, um, I was just commenting, I feel like I know Kate really well, but actually this is the first time I've met her. Kate is a research fellow and convener of the Affordable Housing Hallmark Initiative at the University of Melbourne. Her research focuses on policy, policy and partnerships for affordable housing and the lived experiences of households and housing stress. She's currently conducting action research into the key solutions and actors engaged in housing solutions for older women at risk of homelessness in Victoria. She's published very widely on... Um, on you know on these matters and um, talks publicly quite often, and my friend and colleague Naomi Stead describes her as the ants' pants. <laughs> that's quite. I think that's quite a good one. Fiona Fiona York is the executive officer for Housing for the Aged Action Group. Um, she's been working with old people for almost twenty years in a variety of roles within the community sector, including in elder abuse, community aged care, cultural diversity, and most recently housing. She has postgraduate qualifications in community developments, ethics and legal studies, and she brings a social justice perspective to all aspects of her work. She's worked with the Housing for the Aged Action Group since 2016 and has been the Executive Officer uh, since May 2018, leading the organisation's strong commitment to diversity and advocacy for older people in housing stress. This is an extraordinary group of women we have here. Um, and as I said, we're going to just kick off with um, each person uh, 
really just explaining a little bit more about their experience and work in the area, the things that perhaps don't turn up in the bios that we read out. And this will provide the ground for the conversation that follows. Firstly, amongst the panel, but as I said, I think we can move quite quickly into audience discussion because um, we're a small group and I think we'll be able to have a really lovely and interesting conversation. It's a very serious topic, but we've got super smart and quite funny people here with us, so I think it's going to be a really good afternoon. So, Joe, would you like to start? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've talked far okay. too much. <laughs> have I got my microphone? Hi, my name is Joe, and I wish I could tell you my story in a way that makes me appear strong and brave and clever and resourceful. However, when the forces of patriarchy and the state are arrayed against you, these qualities do not count for very much. I went to a posh girls' primary school. I went to a state school and then I went to a alternative school in Donvale and I've almost completed a philosophy BA at Trobe and I have two graduate diplomas. However, an expensive education and middle-class parents were not enough to prevent me from falling through the holes in the net that are supposed to keep me from destitution. I moved out of the family home as soon as I had a job at 18. I had dropped out of school and was on the under-18 doll, which is barely enough to buy a cabbage. The first house I rented in Fitzroy is now worth three million. <laughs> That's on the front of that zine that I've handed out to all of you, That's 66 George Street. I've been trying to count the number of places I've lived in since then. Maybe, I don't know, maybe 70? 70 places. Some of them are rented, some of them are squats. When I was a squatter, I went through about, oh, I don't know, I moved every couple of months. About 10 houses. Um, Okay, so I'm poor, an artist, not skilled or willing to do anything other than the work that is in me to do, so I don't expect to ever own property. Mostly I've rented as part of a group. But in 2009, I was 45 and I was given six weeks to find somewhere else to live from a flat I'd been renting for 10 years. The rent went up every six months, but my income never went up by very much. I was trying to make a living as a freelance artist, but I, was, I never made enough money to go off the dole, so... I basically was paying the rent a bit late and they got a bit sick of it, so kicked me out and I was evicted and did a lot of pet sitting. So I just wanted to tell you the sort of keys I was carrying around. I had uh, house keys of whoever's house I was minding and I had a post office box key so I could had a place where Centrelink could send me reminders from my appointments with job networks and work for the doll. A key for the padlock on my storage locker with a flat's worth of furniture, books and art. Um, and I also had a studio where, in a warehouse in Clifton Hill. Uh, and uh, I was studying full-time, so I had a locker at RMIT Preston. And so, yeah, that's a lot of keys. And also the spare key from my mother's unit where she was in a retirement village and I wasn't supposed to be staying there, but I did. So... I wasn't sure that a person who still had family and friends, some of whom owned their own homes, qualified as homeless. So it, it took me quite a while to get around to going by the, the official route and going to the um, housing commission at the bottom of the Carlton Towers. And so when I went there, they said, don't you have anyone you could team up with? And I said, no. Uh, I also answered no to questions about partner and family violence, drug addiction... Uh, single parenthood? No, no. I feel like I've been working my entire life to untangle myself from pathological responses to trauma. So, no, I'm just homeless and poor. Uh, so, okay, now I'm on the list. Fantastic. 20, that was 2016. No, from 2010 to 2016. 
Um, so then I walked into a crisis service in Collingwood and everybody was having a crisis there already and they say, so who's your social worker? And I go, can I not be homeless on my own recognizance? Do I need a social worker? And they say, we haven't got, well, you haven't got anybody. Go to Footscray. They might have somebody you could, so I went, okay, okay. Am I really, am I really in crisis? Haven't I got somewhere to stay? Haven't I got a couch to stay on? Haven't I been a squatter? Couldn't I just break into a warehouse or something? Anyway. If it's that or the park, poverty isn't a crisis as far as I'm concerned. I've got family and friends. I've got mental and physical resources. But it wasn't until I had stable and secure housing that I realised, yeah, I was in crisis. I was in a permanent crisis and I didn't realise it because I thought it was normal. So, yeah, that's kind of where I've been and that's probably enough for me for the moment. (laughs) You can ask me questions later about for more uh, excruciating detail. Oh, that's very generous of you to share your story. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, so now we're going to zoom out to the sort of um, the big picture with um, Kay Patterson. Um, in 2019, the Human Rights Commission um, put together the Older Women's Risk of Homelessness report and uh, we were hoping that you could give us some understanding of that report, of the findings and the, the, the issue in relation to human rights and your role as Age Discrimination Commissioner. Thank you very much. Well, I'm, oops. Or you can do whatever you like. <laughs> it's on, it's on. Just say words. One, two. Okay, radio. Thank you. Um, I'm delighted to be here with um, with Kate and Jill and and Fiona and Joe, and um, Justine. Justine. <laughs> I've got two Justines in my family. I should remember that Justine. Sorry. Um, let me just start a bit of my background. If I have to listen to somebody say she dropped out at 15 about somebody who's now in their 70s infuriates me because a lot of us left school when we were 14 or 15 with our intermediate certificates. You could do nursing, you could do physiotherapy, you could do um, primary school teaching, you could, there was massive things you could do. We didn't drop out. We, if we weren't going to do law or medicine, you most probably didn't go on. I was living in public housing. My father had been very damaged during the war um, he was in, um, I look at my nep- nephews now who are 17 and 18. He was in Syria at his 17th birthday and then fought in Papua New Guinea and Borneo. He came back very damaged. My mother then remarried another damaged soldier and we found ourselves in public housing. So my experience has been a lived experience and I know that the thing that gets you out of that is education. That's the important thing. I was very fortunate to be chosen to go on a guide exchange to Mexico, paid for by the Girl Scouts of America. And there were 25 of us from all around the world and the Girl Scouts paid for it. My airfare was twice my annual salary. And, I, and, and they said, the two leaders said, you've got to go back to school when you get back. And I worked for two years to save up and I went back to school, sat next to David Hill um, of ABC fame and had now a, histor- a historian. And he and I sat in a desk together. I'm dying to see him. Um, <laughs> and have a chat to him about our lives and how, where we've gone from there. He was a, 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 one of the kids that came from Britain um, in that wave of young people who came out from Britain being told their mothers had died. In fact, they'd put them into care because they couldn't look after them. So that's most probably explains why I've taken passionate interest in social issues. And um, I'm only the second uh, age discrimination commissioner. Susan Ryan was the first. And she was still finding a way and I'm still finding my way and she and I met every six weeks. Now, she and I overlapped in Old Parliament House for a year 
And one of the things about Old Parliament House was you didn't have a bathroom. You had a little tiny room. And she and I shared a, a toilet because there were not many women. And the only toilet for women was on our side. And so she and I would bump into each other very often. And we got to know each other very well. And it's, um, I don't think that those sort of friendships happen anymore. And I think for a whole lot of reasons, but I think New Parliament House doesn't allow that sort of fraternisation. And, and, I, and I, tre I treasured her friendship. We met every six weeks. So I discussed what I was doing as Age Discrimination Commissioner. And, you know, I've got a lot to... Um, I owe her a lot. Sadly, she died last year and I was devastated by her death. I never want to go to a funeral online ever again because you've got no one to, to share with afterwards. I didn't realise what Wakes did. But let me just say that um, people say to me, can your department do something? Currently, my department's two staff members, a B. And I thought, well, I've got to cut my coat to fit my cloth. We, we had to, I had two staff members, as did Susan. And, and I've begged, borrowed and stolen money from various departments to do some of the things I do. But I focused on three things, on um, older workers and it took me nine years to get rid of the compulsory retirement age in the public service, but we managed to do it. And that makes such a difference to a lot of people who can go back to the public service when they, even when they're older and actually put a bit more money away in superannuation, maybe pay their rent for a bit longer. But it was a really hard slog to get people, they found every reason why not to do it. I didn't realise I, I wouldn't have had this job if I hadn't done it, but I didn't have a self-interest at the time. But one of the things that... Um, that the other things I've done is uh, older workers, elder abuse, which is vile. I can't tell you it goes from pilfering mum's money because you think your siblings aren't doing enough and you take a bit of petrol money through to murder. And we've just had a woman put in jail for 23 years for murdering a mother and taking her jewellery and money. So it goes from awful, just small pilfering right through. Now, if any of you haven't written your enduring documents, go home and do them before Easter. Put a thing on your fridge. You've got to have... Uh, uh, you will, your powers of attorney or during powers of attorney, depending which state you're in, I'm trying to get those harmonised. Oh, my God. Talk about federation. We could actually educate people about the need and what they're... And as an as a attorney, what your responsibility is. And then the next thing that I've been doing is women at risk of homelessness. Now, what can I do as one person? Well, we wrote the paper, my, team, my huge team and I, <laughs> and I put together that paper to try and join the conversation about women at risk of homelessness. And I think it's been actually quoted now a number of times, a number of, just to raise awareness of, amongst some people who weren't discussing it. How did I first get interested in it? My local council, Burundara, about 2010, I think it was, not long after I retired, did a, did a paper interviewing women who were working, living alone, uh, renting, and talked to them about were they at risk of homelessness. And a lot of them didn't realise they were at risk of homelessness. Oh, something would happen. I don't know what was going to happen if they lost their job. And a lot of women are just one episode from homelessness, losing their job, being sick, being kicked out of their place where they were renting, for example. And I thought, what can I do? How can I cut my, cloth to fit, cut my coat to fit the cloth? I'll just look at one group of women. We have these women that Borondara had had highlighted, women at risk of homelessness. Now, it took me nearly three years to get some sort of idea of the figures because you can, you can get women living alone, renting, working, but you can't get what their assets are because that's in the tax office. But I did find a very kind person in ABS uh, 
who was going to charge me $3,000 to get this information. And I said, well, I don't have $3,000. Um, I can give you 100 out of my bank account. Um, and she laughed. She said, but personally, I said, yes, I don't, have an, I don't have a fund to do this. So they found some way of doing it. Now, they're very cautious about the data because it's 2016 ABS figures. But I'm allowed to say it's... I, had to, I said, I can't go to the government unless I know, is it 10,000 or is it 150,000? Well, it's about 70,000 women who have between 200 and $400,000 over and above their super. What do they do when they lose their job or they're sick? They run that money down because they can't see what can be done with it. So I thought about, can we actually have a shared equity scheme where the equity fund, if it's a superannuation fund, and I've talked to Nicola Roxon about that with the Hester people because a lot of them that hurt her members are these sort of women. Um, I also was invited to go and speak at the Retirement Living Conference about eight, six months into the job, 2018, I think I went. And I thought, what am I going to talk to them about? You know, they're regulated by the government, by the state governments. I'll tell them about the things I'm interested in. Well, I sat there like stunned mullets and I thought, God, I've lost, it, lost the plot. You know, I can't get them enthusiastic. They all came up to me afterwards and said, we just thought we were in retirement living. We didn't think about all the other things. So I said, elder abuse is an issue. If somebody comes into the manager's office and says, my son keeps coming, wants 50,000 bucks, how can I stop him coming? I said, you've got to be able to know, your manager's got to be able to know where you can direct them for help. You can't ab absolve yourself of responsibility, etc. Well, then Lee Stockland, all of them came up to me afterwards and said, we've got all these empty one-bedroom apartments. Um, people with Box Hill, whose house is where the boardhouse sells for 1.6 million, or 3 million in George Street. Um, they don't want to live. They want to live in a two-bedroom apartment with a study nook or three-bedroom apartment. We can't reconfigure these one-bedrooms. I said, well, what, why can't you do them up and have people there as long as you give them a place to live for life? Now, not, retirement living isn't for everyone. If you want to live in Rosebud for the rest of your life, it is, or Bendigo or Ballarat. But a lot of people want to keep their asset. And, and some of, the, of them now have come to a point where they let you keep the capital gain. That's another whole story. But we've now got the, the Retirement Living, the uh, Property Council Retirement Living Group put out a paper on women at risk of homelessness for International Women's Day. I went, hallelujah, it's only taken me five years of beating them around the head for them to talk about what are some of the things that governments could do to encourage them to do it. I went, went to DAPDO um, a couple of weeks ago, last week, and visited a project of a retirement living centre, a, a project a place, where they're developing a whole new sector and they got some, a, a small amount of uh, government funding, but they've built a little enclave of eight one-bedroom units with, with a, a, an area where they can actually rent, uh, book, book it and have dinner parties or, uh, or events for their families. I think it'd be better to have them spread around throughout the village, but the funding had to be spent and it had to be done, and I think they got caught up in, in um, bureaucratic nonsense. But anyway, it's and, they, and I met these women, and they said, we feel safe, um, we were consulted about what we wanted, and they've got extra... I thought one of the things that was missing was somewhere for them to work at sewing or woodwork or whatever else, a, a place to do things. They've got garden and everything else, but I think there's... Um, I think. And I loved reading two papers that, that have been um, released. I couldn't come to the launch of the one, I can't remember the name of it either, a design guide for older women in housing. It, that's the sort of stuff we need. We need a whole group of us focusing on this. Now, 
the retirement living sector is not the only sector. I've been working with the banks. The banks now have a number of people who are housing experts and we're talking about shared equity. I met with Anna Bly because Anna Bly are on a mission to get harmonisation of powers of attorney, but we're also on a mission look at can we have equity housing. We call ourselves a unity ticket. Um, we threatened the Attorneys General that we'd go to the press club together, which would be a, a fairly unique thing, having a former Labor Premier and a former Liberal Minister together talking about harmonisation of powers of attorney. Now we're on to equity and, and I, I hope that she's going to put together a group of people who are interested in, in shared equity. We could actually move a lot of people into permanent housing, not only in the short term, but in, if they've got housing to keep them in, in employment, and I'll be finished in a second, keep them in employment, and then have some asset towards their aged care. When the, when the pressure on aged care in 20 years' time, the baby boom's 85 and 90, is going to be enormous, that they've got some assets. So it's a small group, but all of us, when you look at what HAG's doing, when you look at what um, WPI, Women's Property Initiative, doing, they're small. We've all got to take chunks to have examples. The other thing I would love to see is a hub. We've done it now for, for elder abuse. We've got a hub called Compass with all the stuff, 700 different things about elder abuse. I'm now on a mission to have a hub so that we can see all the initiatives across Australia and internationally that people can go and say, had we had our druthers, we would have done this. Here's what the architects are suggesting. I mean, I just hate to see papers come out with just a small group knowing about it. I think yeah. it really is important that we have a hub. That's about all at the moment for me. Thank you. Call to arms. So, Kate, um, your research um, on homelessness really looks at the infrastructure of care. And you're also part of a hub, so perhaps you can... <laughs> yes. I should say that I wasn't texting while you were talking. I was making <laughs> notes to myself of my jobs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get you the money, gotta find the money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll knock it over uh, next year. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> Her colleague's quite good at raising money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, thank you for that. I, I do work for a housing hub and I do care desperately about housing for older women. So I think that's something that we can try and make happen. And I'm, I'm working on a project at the moment trying to bring together the different people who are coming up with these solutions and mapping where they fit in the system and how they fit together and what we need to do to make those connections stronger and what we need to do to link policy and money to solutions. So be part of my team. <laughs> that would be great. In the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need to sleep, right? <laughs> um, I am going to be talking about housing and care ethics. Um, care ethics is a, quite a, a new topic for me, so I'm, I'm enjoying having this kind of platform to think through it. Um, but I also wanted to begin by acknowledging that we meet on Indigenous lands, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. But also I particularly acknowledge that any time we talk about housing in any context and homelessness in any context, we need to acknowledge the experiences of Indigenous people because Indigenous people and Indigenous older women are hugely overrepresented in homelessness. So when we talk about the problem and we think about the solutions, we need to remember that the face of older women's homelessness is disproportionately Indigenous older women. Um, so just starting with, with that perspective. Um, so in talking about care ethics as it applies to older women's housing, I want to stand on the shoulders of giants and I want to bring in three perspectives from three women that I admire really great, really greatly. Um, and the first person I'm going to speak about is Joan Tronto. 
um, who's kind of the queen of care ethics um, and a jumping off point for many people. And Joan Tronto defines care as a species activity that includes everything that we do to maintain, continue and repair our world so that we can live in it as well as possible. And that world includes our bodies, ourselves and our environment. Um, and I find that really inspiring as a way of telling us what we should focus on, what we should look at and pay attention to. And also when we think about what is right and what is good. And when we evaluate policy, when we evaluate housing, when we evaluate systems, we should be thinking about the fact to which it allows people to care for themselves and for each other. And the degrees to which government is taking on the responsibility of caring for people. Um, and that's very much a central premise of care ethics, that we should put care in the centre of what we're thinking about. Um, and I think that's very important. Um, the second person I want to turn to is another scholar that I admire very greatly, and that's Dr Emma Power from the University of Western Australia. And she's done a lot of work in this area. And she talks about housing as an infrastructure of care. And if we think about what infrastructure is, we think about roads, we think about rail, we think about telecommunication, grids and hospitals. It's the, the physical and immaterial stuff that defines what we can do, where we can travel to, how we can be in a place. And we often think about it like a social good, something that increases our productivity, increases our well-being, and housing is absolutely exactly the same thing. It's an infrastructure that supports our well-being and productivity, and it's also an infrastructure that points us in one particular direction or, or not in another. Um, and we can see that the infrastructure of housing allows some people and some communities to care for themselves very well. It allows us to adapt our homes to age safely in place. It allows us to build wealth so we can pass it on to our children and, and protect ourselves throughout retirement. It is located in neighbourhoods that have connections to childcare and hospitals and green spaces and all of those important things. So it's an incredibly powerful resource that allows people to care for themselves and for others. And also a resource that some people are completely lacking in. And when we think about the difference between being a homeowner in retirement and being a renter, how do you protect yourself to age safely in place when you don't know where you're going to be next year? And, and we've already heard exactly that experience. Um, so housing is an infrastructure of care for some, um, but we should be prioritising building an infrastructure that you know, passes out that same care capacity to everyone. Um, and one of the things, and this goes to your point, Kay, about older women or anyone being just one event away from falling into homelessness, being in an incredibly precarious position. And when we think about transitions into homelessness, often it's precipitated by an event or a shock. The difference between someone who has that event and shock occur and falls into homelessness and someone who is is able to move on and rebound and not, is that access to resources and buffering, buffering resources. And what we've seen is a reduction of the government's caring capacity or caring desire. So we've, we've denuded our social housing system. We've pushed more and more women, older women, into JobKeeper or New Start payments, which used to be about at the poverty line and now is well below it. And we've created a system where if you have a shock, if you have an event to happen to you, that, that social network, that state 
supported welfare network isn't there to catch you anymore. And I think that's the, one of the biggest problems and why we're seeing this big uptick. Um, and so when we think about evaluating policy, does it care for people? Um, if you're not providing that buffering network, then, then you're not. So the third person, the third woman that I want to speak about is um, someone called Sarah. That's not actually her name. She wanted to remain anonymous. Um, but Sarah is an older Indigenous woman. She's in her 60s. Is that okay? Is, this... uh, is there someone who can give us some tech support? It's all good. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, I will continue. Um, so Sarah is someone who knows this topic intimately. Um, and I had the great privilege of interviewing her. Great, okay. <laughs> 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 what the phone? Microphone. That phone was talking. Oh, right. was on silent, but that was, was, oh, right. was It's all going on. Um, who was I talking about? Sarah. Sarah. I was talking about Sarah. I interviewed Sarah as part of the housing assembly that the University of Melbourne hosted last year. Um, and I interviewed her as part of a broader research project about people with experiences of domestic violence um, attempting to access crisis accommodation. And it was a, a huge privilege for me and, and good timing for me and for her actually, far more for her than for me, that I managed to catch her a couple of days before she found out that she had um, been accepted into a, a social housing unit for the rest of her life. So I spoke to her a few days before and I spoke to her a few days afterwards. And I think there's nothing more compelling in that argument about how housing links to care than my conversation with Sarah, um, who had spent an entire lifetime in and out of homelessness and 20 years living in a boarding house before this, this occurred, um, this happened for her. Um, and I asked her what moving from that boarding house into her own home would mean for her. And I'm looking at my notes because I want to use her words um, verbatim. She said, having this home means that I can use my NDIS package for the first time. I've never been able to use it because no one could come here. I can have a friend over. I can have a visitor. I can Camille. I can start living. I can stop wearing these hideous clothes that I'm forced to wear because the men here just want to sexually assault me. Over 10 years ago, I took my address book, I ripped it up and I threw it in the bin. I realized I could no longer have a female over. Only if they were male and could handle themselves could they come to the house. And there's just so much embedded in that, in the connection between your capacity to care for yourself and to care for your networks, to care for your family. If you don't have that fundamental right, how does anything else come from there? Um, she told me a story about buying a new dress that she never got to wear because she never felt safe wearing it. And I asked her what she was going to do when she moved into her home. And she said, after a few months, or maybe even a few weeks, I'm going to get the dresses out of the wardrobe and I'm going to put them on and wear them. I'm going to walk to the bus stop. I'm going to head down to the hairdresser, get my hair cut and colored again and wear my hair down. I'm going to wear my sandals. I'm going to carry my new handbag. Just the little things, baby steps. So the value of housing is having a safe, affordable, clean, secure place to live without being interfered with or harassed. And the social value is a new start in a new community, a new foundation to give me the opportunity to build a new life and repair myself like an old car. Get the mechanics in there emotionally, physically, and it's like taking me to auto-tune. 
I'm going to pretend I'm a car and I need servicing. I need a tune-up. I need to relearn those things every woman should be able to take for granted in the future if she has a safe, secure home. And I think um, that's a really... I mean, I couldn't say it any better than her, so I'll stop there. <laughs> Sarah's is a wonderful story to be able to share. Thank you, Kate. It's um, very... Um, goes to the heart of the thing, the topic, doesn't it? Very beautifully. Um, okay, Fiona. So you are Executive Officer of the Housing for Aged Action Group, which has the fabulous acronym of HAG. Is that how we pronounce it? <laughs> so good. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do with HAG and... Um, why, why housing women at risk of homelessness is so important? I think we, we've all got a simple answer to that, but have you got a more complex answer for us? Um, I don't know if it's any more complex than what Kate just mm -hmm. outlined there, actually, about how housing results in your health and well-being across every aspect. So HAG, um, some people call it HAG or HAG, um, has been going since 1983. It was started by a group of older pensioners on the peninsula who were concerned about the number of people that they were seeing in the community who were living on the age pension and in, living in private rental. And at that time, there was only about 700 people on the um, wait list for public housing. Now we have hundreds of thousands of people on the wait list. So you can see how much things have changed since the 80s. Um, that group of older pensioners were really passionate about making sure that everybody um, had the right to a safe, affordable and appropriate place where they wanted to live for as long as they needed to live. Um, and our whole system, our whole pension system and our whole welfare system is predicated on the idea that people own their own homes when we know that in actual fact that's not the case. So um, we are an action group and we, are also, um, a, we also deliver a service. So the two things that we try to do is to change people's lives and to change the system. So in changing people's lives, we have a service that's called Home at Last. And that service sees around, helps around a thousand people a year um, to plan for their housing future. And of those 1,000 people, we usually manage to get about 160 odd people into long-term safe and affordable housing. That housing is usually community housing or public housing. And some, there are also some low-cost retirement housing options as well. Um, it's really important for us as an organisation to try and reach people before they hit the point of crisis because a lot of the homelessness systems in Victoria and across the country are based on, as Joe described, a very crisis-oriented approach. And unless you're experiencing, um, you know, very, very dire circumstances like family violence or... Um, um, various, you know, issues that are happening in the homelessness system, sleeping on the street um, is the most visible type of homelessness, you aren't going to get a service just because of the high demand. And so our service is more tailored for um, older people who can sit down with someone and have a chat about their options and hopefully avoid having to hit the crisis point by making a plan before that happens. So what we usually say to people is that if you're an older woman living alone in private rental, then you're probably at risk of homelessness and it does only take one shock before you're out um, and in, in crisis. So we try to get people to come to us before that happens. Um, that early intervention approach that we take is really driven by the lived experience of people who have been through our service. And there's some great people here today who have been through our service and received 
long-term affordable housing and are then able to go out into the community and tell their stories and be able to encourage people just like them to break down that stigma about what homelessness actually means um, and that it can happen to anyone. Joe is a great example of that. So, um, so that's what we do around our changing um, people's lives. And we have a, around 60% older women come to our service. Only about 8% older women go to crisis homelessness services. So you can see the difference our service delivery um, makes on the lives of older women. We also have around half of our, um, half of our clients are culturally and linguistically diverse. Um, and that's because we use um, bilingual educators, we use um, ethno-specific services and community leaders to try and reach people that may not come through the door. And we know that that system, that, that's a really effective way of getting people who may not recognise themselves as being at risk and also not know where to go to help for help even if they did. So in terms of changing the system, that's the other big thing that we like to do. So we'll talk a little bit more about what you can do at the end of this, I hope. But there is a federal election coming up and Victoria also has a state election coming up. And it is the responsibility of all levels of government to be doing something about this housing crisis. It's not enough for the platitudes. It's not enough to be recognising that there's a crisis. We actually need decision makers to be making decisions about where they put their money in their budgets to ensure that this doesn't happen and this wave of older women who are struggling in private rental don't end up sleeping in their cars and don't end up in really poor quality boarding houses where they can't even wear the clothing that they want to wear or choose to have people over. That's not good enough. And so what we want to do is change the system so that people are actually um, housed as is their right and as um, impacts on all levels of their housing and health and wellbeing. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about that later perhaps and we can get into the rest of the discussion. Thank you very much. It's um, yeah. Um, I'm also I'm I've got some questions here that um, that we've prepared and that you've had, but I'm also really interested to know if you've got things to ask each other. So um, I'm going to ask one question, but maybe we you might also are there things you want to say to each other? I you know have a think about that while I. So um, look, the first question that that we've got here is. is um, why are single women over at the age of 45 the fastest growing cohort? And I think we've kind of answered that to some extent in, that com in the conversation right then. But does anybody have an anything further to what's been said that... Money. Money. Yep, money. Isn't that the answer to all of these questions? Yeah. <laughs> can, I just, can I just say yes. that um, I think it's been a bit like the frog in the hot water. Um, my grandmother's husband ran away and left her... <coughs> So I come from a line of women who've been left on their own. But the, the thing is that most women used to stay in terrible marriages and the husband would die at 75 or 74, not long after they retired, and then they had a home. And suddenly we've had an increase in divorce and you might get a bit of money, that's half of what's left in the house, but then you try to keep the kids at home. You end up paying more for them than than child support, if you get child support. And so then you suddenly find the kids have gone, he's moved on into another relationship and got somebody looking after the next lot of kids and they've got two incomes possibly and you are left with nothing or nothing that you can buy a house with. So I think it's happened slowly and the decrease in home ownership has happened slowly. And I think it's almost been imperceptible to policymakers, but very perceptible to the, to the people who deliver it. The other thing I think that's 
we talked about state and federal government, but the councils have got a lot that they could do in making demands on developers mm. and on on using airspace. You know, you look at I look at Pran, look at that car park near the thing. And I think, oh God, you know, you could have a whole lot of accommodation above this. Churches have got a lot of space, and I've been pushing the Uniting Church in particular about what are they doing about some of the space they've got, and not giving them there were systems are not giving letting go of the property, but of building on it so they've got the asset, but maximising the land to actually create housing, but also affordable housing. And I think I think we've just got to think outside the square a bit mm. more than we've been thinking. And I think everybody's got to be involved, including councils, because they've got. A, a lot of land. B, they can change the rules more easily. And I've got an idea about temporary dual occupancy. Down at Port Phillip, they've got a scheme of shared housing. How much better if you could actually have a large house, stay in it, have someone living there helping you, giving them accommodation, and the, and if you put a kitchen in, it's a shared, it's, it's dual occupancy and you can't do it. And yet if they could have um, temporary dual occupancy, that went with the owner of the house, so I'm 80 and I can live there till I'm 92 or 94, I've most probably provided housing for someone for a period of time that they can actually begin to save, least hopefully to get into some sort of other accommodation. I just think there are a million ideas, but some of them are hamstrung mm. by these hurdles you've got to get over or rules that don't apply or shouldn't apply. Mm. Yes. Oh, when I said money, I meant that we should have more, as in women should have more. <laughs> And also millionaires should have less. That's pretty much... Yep. <laughs> so increasing the dole, increasing pension and then taxing the life out of uh, property developers as in it's a, a money-making hoarding scheme for them and that's unacceptable. Indeed. <laughs> we, Kate or Fiona, do you have anything else to... I mean, we've, you've kind of explained it, but have you got anything, anything we... Um, we I mean, no, no, like, lightning bolt inspirational things to contribute to that beyond, I guess, reiterating what you said, Kay, about the fact that home ownership is falling. Mm. And so while this is increasing, it's a really, really big issue into the future mm. when that cohort moves through and there's more and more people who are reliant on renting in retirement and we know that's pretty much impossible to do in a like in a in a way that allows you to continue to be connected to your community mm. that's that's the direction we're heading in and that's mm. the problem yeah yeah mm. well the the person we've got speaking on Wednesday is now with the YWCA looking at housing for younger women at risk of homelessness which you know is again a kind of preventative Measure. Fiona, do you...? I, I was just going to say the, re the reason that there's so many older women now, I think, is the, the combination of ageism and gender inequality. Mm. So the lifetime of lower wages and lack of superannuation, I think a third of women over 60 have zero superannuation. I've got none. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't even a thing really for women until we couldn't even get a loan in your own name until the 80, late 80s. So I think these things are a problem and then when you hit um, ageism as an older woman, mm. you're going to be retrenched from your job and you're not going to get back into the workforce. And we have a lot of older women who are in their late 50s, early 60s who are quite capable of working, but employers don't want them. Mm. And I know this is a passion of yours as well, Kay. So I just think it's not a coincidence that this is happening. This is a systemic issue and it's not the fault of individual people and the choices that they make. And I think the more stigma that we can remove by talking about 
about the systemic issues, the better, because it's really difficult for public housing developments and social housing developments to go ahead when the neighbours are complaining because of the stigma. So it's up to all of us to break down that stigma and not talk about people's individual choices, but talk about the things that have been put in place, lack of superannuation, low paid jobs, um, negative gearing, and all of the reasons why a lot of people have a lot of, you know, a small amount of people have a lot of money. Why is this going on? It's not because you, I don't know, chose to go on an overseas holiday with the $5,000 super that you saved or whatever else it is. So I think we just need to, all of us, have a responsibility as people in society to break down that stigma and and um, think about that. And the yeah, it's important that we recognise that it's not about individual choices, it's about the system. Can I just say that we've just, we, we, Susan Ryan did some research in 2014 I repeated it in 2018 and 2021. We're hoping to do it again in 2023 with the Australian Human Resources Institute. And we, they, about 600 HR people responded. And in 2014, there were 57% of companies that said they had an age above which they prefer not to employ. I mean, that's incredible age discrimination. It went down by 2021 to 27%, which is not bad. But the worst thing was that the age at which they thought someone was old in 2014 was 62, and now it's gone down to 52, which shook up the journalists. I can't tell you how much press we got, because they thought, oh, I'm 45. When, <laughs> when they said 62, nobody cared, so it seemed well on the, the distant future. Mm. And, and I, think that, I think maybe that was COVID, that people thought, oh, we're moving to online stuff, that older people can't do, um, you know, IT. I may have to have what I teach some of my staff to do about deferred emails and stuff they didn't know existed. Um, but I just think that, I ho we hope in 21 that's washed out, but it's still 27. Yeah. A quarter of, of companies don't want to employ people over 52. So ageism is, permeates everything. It permeates policies, it permeates. And the other thing about superannuation, for those of us who are older, I didn't join superannuation because it wasn't portable. And I saw people stuck in jobs they hated. Anybody here is over 70. I'm getting closer to 80 now than I was at 70. But anyway, um, they, they, I was scared stiff because I thought, I don't want to be in a job in the public service and have to stay in it. The fact that you can now make it portable, but all the things about insurance being taken out without you knowing, yeah. um, I think has been appalling and there are some measures. But the only thing you've got to think about when you're thinking about taxing people, there's a point at which capital shifts its money somewhere else or hides it. So it's got a, you, you've got a tipping point, and I don't know how you get to the tipping point. I, I've tried to do some of that stuff when I was a minister, but um, I, I just I, I, I think what upsets me is where are all the people today? We have some issues where we have people marching up outside Parliament House, and where are the people when when Marguerite? Some of you should watch Marguerite when you look at Marguerite um, uh, sexual abuse. She was 90, 95 when she, was, when she was assaulted, when she was raped by a manager of her small unit complex she was in. Didn't tell anybody because she thought she might, um, she might have, um, people would think she asked for it. Why aren't we marching in the street about that? Ageism mm. is so permeates. And people don't care about older women being mm. at ho homeless. I can't tell you, it's not a sexy topic. Like elder abuse is not sexy. Mm. Ageism permeates a whole lot of policy, a lot of interests, and we get money spent on some things that I think could be better spent on older people. Mm.
And just, I'll just quickly add on that thing. Our, we have an LGBTI project where we're working with older LGBTI people and we cannot for the life of us get any funding because all of the LGBTI funding is for youth. And that's just a really good example of, of how the government's set up to discriminate against older mm -hmm. people. So the next topic on my sheet of paper is invisibility and I think we've touched on that in so many ways and the, the intersection of age, of gender, of eth ethnic cultural background, of socioeconomic background um, and uh, to the extent where, Joe, you, you didn't see yourself as being homeless. Yeah, I so I, th I wonder if yeah. we might just dig into this question of invisibility a little bit more. Well, I was uh, in housing stress, as in every time I had uh, trouble paying the rent and then just sort of scraped it together at the last minute. That was all that time I could have been on the housing list, as in, I, but I didn't think of myself as the sort of person who goes on the housing list. Mm. And I didn't know anything about HARG. I didn't know anything about the services that were available to me because I thought, this isn't for me because I'm not in any kind of crisis. And then when I was in a crisis, I was like, everybody else is having it worse, so this isn't for me either. So I was invisible to myself in, the, in terms of how precarious my rental situation was. So, mm. yeah. yeah, so the, and the question of stigma is not just something that's external, it's... Oh. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't ashamed, but I was thinking everybody has it worse than me. Yeah. Do you see what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if all of these reports and various things um, identify women, older women, as invisible, unaccounted for or missing, I mean, what, how do we move on from reports noting this to... I mean, I guess we're here, but how does one increase visibility? How do, how do we... I mean, because in some ways there's... A, you know, we're going to talk about we're talking about solutions, and really, this whole week's about is, is talking about what to do. But until the until it's until these this structural problem is seen, and until these individual women are seen, um, it's very hard to know how to how anything will come about. While, while there's this question of invisibility, I think people like Joe telling their stories publicly is a yeah. really amazing way to reduce that and people recognise themselves in these stories yeah. too. And um, so I think there's a lot to be done about awareness raising. I do think awareness has been raised quite a lot in the last five years or so about older women and homelessness. I'm still not seeing any action, mm. um, but uh, yeah. So I think one of the things is people telling their stories. I also think the service system needs to be better. Um, and specialist services like ours, we're the only one um, in the country that does what we do, which we've just had um, an announcement recently that Queensland's going to copy what we're doing in Victoria, which is fantastic. But there's just no services that are appropriate for older women or older people generally, um, where they aren't feeling that, oh, someone's more deserving than me. Um, there's all of these people with young kids and they're in crisis and, and it's not for me. We actually do have, take the time to sit down with people and talk about what they may be able to do. Um, and I think it's that recognition that things take time. The time pressure of a crisis service, it's quite intimidating to walk into and you don't necessarily want to be there. So I think we need better specialist services and more people telling their stories to break down the stigma and the, and the response needs to be better when they do um, have the guts to walk through the door. Um, and I think that is a really big step to actually front up and say, hey, I mean, I need help. That's a really, really big step for a lot of people that have been managing their whole lives 
through all their resources, as Joe has said. Yeah. And that, that's quite gendered too, isn't it? Oh, there are other people who are worse off than me, you know. I think one of the things is that a lot of services say when, when I visit them, women come late. That's mm. what you're saying. Oh, I'm not homeless. I've been staying with my sister. Mm. I'm not homeless. I've been staying with my son till my daughter-in-law said that she didn't want me anymore. Um, I did have one little win. Um, I met two young women in Canberra who were very interested in elder law and succession planning in their late 20s. And I decided I'd just go and visit them. I think they thought I'd come from out of space. Because <laughs> I said, I just want to say, isn't it fantastic that you two are interested in elder law? And I said, I just wanted to encourage you. We're going to have the biggest transfer of wealth in the history of Australia. We're going to have more people ripped off and, and risk of, 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 of elder abuse. And they said to me, there's a problem. And I said, what's the problem? They said, if you put money, if you've got a, a, a little apartment and you sell it and you put the money into your son's house and you have a family agreement, there's capital gain on the portion that you put in. I said, what do you mean? It's their principal place of residence, you know? And she said, well, I have to tell them that that's a, a problem. If they don't have an agreement and nobody knows about it, then they can get away with it. And so that, what's the son say? Oh, mum, you know, don't don't sign an agreement. We'd never do that to you. He dies. The daughter-in-law says, I, didn't, I don't want you here. And services have said they've got grandma with a suitcase at their door, never having thought she'd be homeless. So I did actually see my local member, and who happens to be the treasurer, and I said, this has got to be fixed, like sooner rather than later. So he sent it to the tax board. They came back and said, this seemed to be an anomaly. I mean, you can't know everything when you're a minister, just the, that nitty-gritty. They, um, in the last budget, um, the legislation now has changed. As the 1st of July, if you put money into a house with a sibling or a, a, a sibling or a son or a niece, and you've got an agreement, there's no capital gain. Now, that was a small thing to avoid homelessness of a few people, but everyone you salvage is one person less that's standing there, like I had when I was a senator, a Greek woman who came to my door at half past four in the afternoon with a suitcase, and the family had said, you can leave now because the kids are growing up and we don't need your help anymore. And she was standing there with a suitcase. Thank God I knew the priest up the road in Clayton, and he had an old um, nursing home that he was renting, giving rooms out to people at low cost and we got her housed overnight. I thought I was going to have to take her home. Half past four on the Friday afternoon, she turns up in my office. And you suddenly find those sorts of issues of somebody who never thought they'd be homeless mm. and that the family agreement was an issue. Now, it's only a tiny thing. It's only a tiny thing. But those two girls raised that with me and I talked them through each step of the way and then went and saw them afterwards and said, if you hadn't met me, what could have you done? And hopefully... Um, I've trained two young lawyers to lobby when so they see something that's, that has an adverse effect. And that was an unintended consequence. That's only small. Mm. But I still think that some... I think short of us running around naked on lawns of Parliament House, I don't know what else you can do to raise people's attention, but I think the, I think the problem is that people are, are hidden. Mm. Uh, they're homeless, not even at risk of homeless. They, they're basically homeless, wandering from one rental place to another or boarding house, and they don't even get into the census, census figures. I, I think the problem is significantly, significantly mm. worse than any policy person mm. realises. And it's a very, it's, you know, what they call a wicked problem, isn't it? There's so many factors, there's so many 
systems and structures contributing to it that need to be sort of untangled and unpicked. Um, and I get, that was my question in relation to the personal stories are so extraordinarily powerful and, and so generous and brave for people to share them. Data can also have a really big impact, and often, again, this isn't this isn't my this isn't my area, but in my area, it feels like the combination of data and personal stories are often what really kicks things over the line. It's those things working together. But Kate, what's the role of research? How do I, <laughs> um, I mean, there's many. Uh, I I feel very passionately that all research should be activist research. You shouldn't ever research something without an end goal of changing something for the better. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I, I know that not everyone agrees and that's fine, but I think there's a role as the researcher who can put the data into the hands of the activist. Yeah. And then there's the role of the researcher who is the activist and does both of those components. And I think who you're talking to changes what's going to be useful. Like there's some audiences and some conversations where a personal story is very important. Yeah. And then there's some conversations where you need to say, there are 400,000 women mm -hmm. at risk of homelessness. The quantifiable cost of that on our system is X. Yeah. How, what are you going to do to solve that budget deficit? Or mm -hmm. what are you going to do to fix that problem? Um, and having... Uh, having that number to hand about how many women fall into the bucket mm. that have 200000 to $400,000 and could benefit from a shared equity scheme, research is really powerful because mm. then you can take that to a superannuation fund or to a developer or to um, CIFA, whoever, local council, Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, and say, here's the problem. Let me make it easy for you. Here's the solution, <laughs> which is even more important. Yep. And then how do we work together to work out the nuance, the details of what we've already identified as the problem and the solution? Mm. Um, and so I think that's really important. The other thing is that as a researcher at the University of Melbourne, I come from immense privilege. And my institution is very wealthy. We have resources. Like yep. we can work with amazing artists to create the art, well, not to create the art, to fund the art that then gets spread around. Yeah, do you want a job? <laughs> like, we have all of these resources, all of this time, all of, well, all of this time. <laughs> um, but like, we have a purview in our work, which is really quite creative. Mm. Um, and not a lot of other people have that privilege. So I think that research is <laughs> yeah, hugely powerful. We can do whatever you need. <laughs> Well, but again, it's the it's the, the combination, isn't it? The combination of government and governance, of research, of act, of people on the ground taking action, of people telling their stories. It's all these things together. That, and I think you know, Tanya's has put together a really great panel because we have all of these perspectives here. Do we have some of the some of the councils? Some of the councils are much more proactive than others. Yes, and they, I, I was talking to a guy who was involved in the development of a project. And they did a deal with the local council. They got an extra floor if they provided a, common, a space for 14 units for um, a community housing group on the ground. Then council said, well, wait, well we could make them two storeys. We could make 28. And so if councils then push the, um, the developer by saying, yes, you can have, you can have X, Y or Z if yeah. you do this, there's that, that thing. There's another example I'm looking at in, in Sydney of over 55s living and they've built one tranche, they're building the second tranche now, they're hoping to have 12 places for people with disability and 12 places 
for affordable housing. There's a big new hospital nearby and they're negotiating to see whether an extra floor will provide them with that money. And now uh, an organisation called Project Independence, which houses um, is a, a, a not-for-profit organisation run by a businessman in, in Canberra because he's got a son with disability, and they've been building places. And people say, this is the first time I've been able to lock my door. You know, I'm in my own place. And they're using their pension to purchase part of it. And he's now working with that group to try and do both lots of housing. Now, one of them, the people in the first housing block, want their, two of them want their son or, and or daughter, I've forgotten their two kids, young people, in these houses so they can actually help them to become more independent, living nearby, so that when they die, they've they've got themselves into a community. And you think there's some really creative stuff that's going on um, because people of goodwill are pushing the council to enable them to have affordable housing within there. And I, I just think councils have got a... I'm actually speaking on Wednesday night or Thursday night. I forgot which night it is. I'd better find out and look at my diary. <laughs> over at the art gallery of the um, Healthy, Healthy Ageing Awards. I'm going to give them a bit of a hurry up at the council, local government level. So um, they might have thought I was coming to be nice about their awards, but I'm going to actually put the pressure on them. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, look, I thought we might just open up to the audience. Um, and we have got a, a one last question that we're going to do the rounds with, but I would like to move to the audience first. And um, we've got a lot of people here who, um, well, uh, a lot of the people here, I think, have very good insight, and so who would like to raise, have the first question or comment? I'm looking at you. <laughs> Great, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> this is this is Sophie, who is one of the authors of the uh, design guide for older women's housing, that, and, my and and convener of this whole series. One of representing. <laughs> The three of us today, yes. Sam, who lives in Sydney, who can't be here, and Tanya, who is COVID isolating. And thank you, Justine, for stepping into Tanya's role right. today. Um, I guess just one curiosity that I've thought of. Can you put the mic front up? Yeah. Uh, oh. Um, you, HAG helps about a 1,000 people a year. How many people should you be helping? <laughs> You mean how many people are not accessing the service that could be? That's right. Hundreds of thousands. And this is why we need to have more services like ours all across the country. Um, we're a team of about 20 people and it's not nearly enough. So, yeah, we definitely need to be replicating our service in other places and increasing the number of people that can get help. Also, we need more public and community housing so we can actually house more than 160 a year as well. Catherine. Hi, I'm Catherine. Um, I have a story that's not dissimilar to the Sarah and the Joe story, and yet no one actually thinks that I could. I present as someone who's articulate, I present as someone who was up the front yesterday. Um, and I think it's really important in terms of stigma that people are actually hearing stories from people who are not quite there yet. That, you know, it's, it's nine years since I worked. That's just ridiculous. Um, so I'm 65, I've had my third 21st, as I say. And 
I was lucky enough to have parents who had six children and amassed, you know, sort of two million by the time they retired. They were also working class people. So I have this little buffer. But, you know, I have to run that down to an extreme. I'm conscious every day of whether or not I choose to purchase coffee or not, whether I walk or whether I tram. All of these things that, as I said, I don't feel terrible I'm, you know, I've had my period of absolute flatlining and not wanting to be here. But the reason, that I, and I've spoken to Tanya about this as well, the reason I'm prepared to tell my story is I don't look like. No one presumes. All my friends are, you know, in $2 million houses, travelling overseas, all that sort of stuff. I'm not quite part of their lives anymore because I haven't worked. I'm just as capable, all of those things. So how do we use the assets that are intangible in my life in a way that actually, I'm not asking for handouts, I'm not needing handouts, I own my own apartment. I'm certainly one step away from um, a need that if I have a health, chronic health condition and I have to pay $40 for a prescription, et cetera, it's like, oh. So it's all those intangible things that, that as I said, People like myself don't normally share. Mm. And it's actually in sharing those stories that the parent that sits next to you goes, oh, yeah, I'm sort of in a marriage now. I was in a marriage too. Oh, he went overseas. Again, probably should have done it 10 years earlier. All those sort of things. But it's actually the consequences of those decisions and how they play out that most of us don't think through. So when I chose to retire from the public service, in inverted commas chose, um, at 55, I thought I'd get a job tomorrow. But we got recessions. You know, we got, we got all of these things. I took some risks around money in terms of employ, employing myself. If it worked out, I'd be sitting up in, you know, here, here's Catherine running ABC startup. I think the thing I'm trying to say is that until we actually start to talk about people's whole lives in ways that actually talk about their whole life, we're only getting the headlines of whether it's Women's Weekly of the old or the social media of today because it's, it's in those collegiate true stories of Sarah, Joe and I that people go, oh, hold on, how can they be alike? So I urge us to actually start talking, talking yes in fora, but how do you know what your girlfriend's doing? Are we making assumptions that when we invite someone to coffee, which is our standby, that in fact they can afford the coffee and cake? Because I'll turn up, I'll turn up, because otherwise I don't have a friend. So it, it, it's in the subtleties that I think, because then instead of having to go naked <laughs> in Parliament House, it's everybody's going, oh, holy proverbial. I know someone like that. Oh, oh, hold on. Maybe I can actually do a, it might not be big, but it might just be that little thing. Thank you. Would anybody like to? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Is that on? Yeah. My name's Jennifer. Now, I know the government's going to give us a $20 pay rise or whatever. Yay. No, I don't care. Keep it. Because all it does is give social housing more money and I'll be lucky if I get probably $4 out of it. 
So people saying, oh, you know, you're going to get $20, you're going to get $15. I think, mm, no, I don't think so. All it does, my rent goes up. Joe, you're right? Yep. I don't want, I don't want a pay rise. Forget it. I don't want it. Because all I'm doing is giving it to them. And still, I'm not getting any further ahead. And all it does, it depresses me and really does depress me. I got $50 on my probably last year or something, a pay rise. I got $23 out of it. Social housing got $27. It just depresses me. I feel like saying the same thing. No, 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 don't give it to me, please. And social housing ran me up last week. Oh, I need, we're doing a rent review. I thought, I haven't got the pay rise rent yet and you already want me to tell you what I'm getting. Are you for real? So, yeah, really, I know we want money, but no, thank you. <laughs> more than 50 bucks, I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just they need it more than me. It's, it is depressing. We don't actually get the money. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. But they don't seem to be Yeah, that's great. Hi, I'm Maeve. Um, just something interesting that happened to me yesterday. I got a phone call from the Herald Sun and asking me, um, she seemed to know about my age, and asking me if I was one of those people that would go back into the workforce as they now are looking at bringing older people Will you back. move your microphone closer, please? Yeah. We'd love to Did hear. Did you hear any of that? Better. Yes, <laughs> perfect. Well, that's all I actually had so, to say. So you had a you had a phone call from, from the, the Herald, Herald Sun. Sun. I don't read it, so I don't know where they got my name from. But um, I said, no, I'm not interested in going back into the workforce, and explained why. And she said, oh, and she asked me, would I approach any of my other friends? And she then sent it to me in a text message. And I was actually going to send it to you, Fiona, copy it and send it on to you, which I will. And, uh, but I've sent it to a couple of friends, but I know they're not interested because they've, they're loaded, but <laughs> you never know. And, and what, so what was the rationale? Was, was this a, well, were they doing... Apparently, um, there's, there's talk in the government, I can't remember whether it's or both, or both, sorry, <laughs> and um, that they're now trying to get older people back into the workforce. Right, yes. And the Herald Sun seemed to be doing something about this. And right. I, I, must probably can, I must probably can fill you in on that. There's some legislation that's before the Senate. I don't know that'll get through this week and the election's going to be called. But one of the disincentives for people who are on the age pension is that if they work and they exceed the assets test, they have to go back and start all over again. And mm. the legislation is going to change that so that if you, if you just say you do a father... Or, Mother Christmas, I suppose, here, but Father Christmas, and you earn an excessive amount during Christmas and you exceed the test, then instead of having to go, instead of having to say, no, I don't want, can't do any more work because I'm going to exceed the assets test, then you can actually do that but go back onto the pension immediately. And I then asked, well, can you do it over and over? And they said, yes. Now, um, yeah, not, some jobs you can do. I've got a, a friend whose mother's 82 and she's still doing aged care in the home. And she's not doing lifting, but she's preparing meals, she's putting them in the freezer for somebody. She can do stuff that she could do at home and, and loves it. And, and so some people can and want to work longer, but I think that well, that's why the Herald Sun might have been onto it because I think it's, it should be discussed in, this, in, the, in the Parliament this week if they get time with the budget. Right. Okay. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Justine. <laughs> um, thank you so much to the panel and everyone who shared their stories. I'm personally sitting here trying to hold back the tears and finding it very, very intense and very gut-wrenching. Um, 
one very quick question and the second question's for the panel. I might have missed this previously, but if someone's in a boarding house, does that classify as homelessness? Yes. Okay. And so what if you know someone then? You have a friend of a friend, an acquaintance, a distant relative, some, someone you've met that's an older woman and you're like, okay, this ticking all these boxes that we've talked about today. What do you do? And how do you support someone? Do they go to your service or... Yeah. yeah, so if they're, as you say, um, in a place where they can't stay as long as they need to, which is basically boarding houses and private rental, then they're, class of, they're defined by the ABS as homeless or at risk of homelessness. They can call our 1300 number and we can go through their options. If they've got less money in the bank than around $32,000, we can probably assist them into public and community housing relatively quickly because in Victoria we're lucky enough to have a priority for people who are 55 years and older and we also have 55 specific older person's housing which um, means that you can live amongst people who are around the same age. So if they have less than $32,000, they're probably fine. If they have between thirty-two dollars and about three hundred dollars or 400000 it's really, really hard. And that's the missing middle that we're concerned about and shared equity options and things like that are um, options for them, but they're very small scale. Um, and basically, you have to sit there in private rental depleting your income until you get below 32000 and then you're eligible. So this is a big issue. Yep, exactly. You miss out on rent assistance. So um, the shared equity models that are around women's property initiatives has one. There's a few housing co-ops that are trying to get off the ground with similar scale, um, similar things. But we're talking four units here and 10 units there. They're very, very small scale and they really need to be upscaled uh, radically for that um, for that person. But if they, I would say, give, the, give us a call. Um, we've got some brochures here if you want to take one for your friends as well. And our, our intake workers will go through all of the options and assist people to try and find something that works for them. Okay. If they're in Victoria. <laughs> okay, I've got two more questions here, one of which I know is really close to Tanya's heart, so I want to ask it, which is about prevention. Um, so we've, we've heard today that um, a lot of housing services are crisis-oriented because there's a lot of people in crisis, I guess, um, and that so how she's got here, housing services are focused on stemming a rising tide and at risk of being overwhelmed. So what is the role of prevention and how can we get government to realise that it needs to focus on prevention as well as dealing with um, immediate crises? Um, I might go first. So there's, there's many things. Um, part of that prevention element is looking at shared equity yeah. um, and whether there's a way that we can make entry into home ownership attainable for some people. Um, there's a small component to which we can look at greater housing diversity mm -hmm. um, and we can look at whether we can build additional housing that is at different price points. I feel a bit uncomfortable saying that because you already have to be quite privileged to be able to afford something that's smaller. Mm. Um, and so that's going to be a solution for some people, but again, it's missing people. But if we're trying to get two women before they get to the crisis point, then that's something to be thinking about. Um, and I think the, another thing that's really important to talk about with prevention is the role of domestic violence. Mm -hmm and supporting women to get support before they get to the crisis stage with, um, with, well, with family violence or um, with elder abuse as well. Um, and I know that there is conversations and there's programs happening around um, keeping women in the home 
um, and removing the perpetrator rather than focusing on removing the um, woman at risk from the situation where she then loses connection to her to her networks and the kids get pulled out of schools and, and there's a huge disruption there. So I think part of the prevention is also doing a lot of work around supporting domestic violence services and responses as well. Okay, anyone else want to talk to the... Oh, I've got the question as what services would have helped you and I listed um, UBI. Do you know what everybody knows what a universal basic income is? Yeah. Uh, that would have really helped me, you know, non means tested, just sort of just have it. There you go. Because a lot of the time the artwork that I've been doing didn't have any kind of commercial value, but I still did it because yeah. <laughs> I'm an idiot. And in terms of the how women's work is structured, a lot of the work women do is not, is essential, but is not uh, materially rewarded, yeah. as in it doesn't... Does it, so if I'd been in a relationship, a lot of the times where I was completely broke would have been cushioned. The, the, I've got age mates and um, who have been in long-term relationships for the same time that I've been single and they have not been in the workforce and then gone back into the workforce and had children and their partner's doing the all of the money stuff but then they swap over and they... So it's like being single is another sort mm. of uh, disadvantage because of um, not having anybody to buffer you from the, the being brokenness. <laughs> one of the things that would have helped. Uh, universal basic income. And I just, I'm bringing it up because it seems more popular now that we've spent a bit of time indoors over the pandemic and we've all gone, you know, the objections to UBI are, well, people would just do nothing and take the money. And I'm like, now everybody knows it's really hard to do nothing. Mm. Sitting at home doing nothing is shit. So <laughs> nobody would do it. Everybody would. The studies have suggested people do stuff. Mm. Yeah. Just not stuff that is financially rewarded if they're got a, a basis in the universal basic income. Okay, so the, the <laughs> one of the studies just been released just before Christmas was the prevalence study on elder abuse. I, I think it shocked everybody because the health, World Health Organisation figures 2 to 14% and our prevalence study showed 15% of women, of, of people, mainly women, um, and mainly are the perpetrators the sons, not all of them, but... Um, 15%, one in six people have in the previous five years have suffered elder abuse, which is appalling. And a lot of it, some of it, is partner-to-partner -partner abuse that people have put up for years and years and years. And as the person develops dementia, their aggression and behaviour becomes even worse. And we've got a lot of people living in totally unacceptable situations, even though they own a home yeah. and they can't leave because they feel, well, the kids say if I leave him because he's... he's he, I've never told them he's violent. So I think... Um, getting to older people and getting them to understand that there are services now available to them. There's some really interesting work that's been done. Victoria now has 10 collaborations right around, around Victoria of people who are all interested or involved in elder abuse. The first one was in Box Hill. And, and what happens is that the pharmacist knows, gets to know the policeman and the policeman gets to know the social worker and the aged care assessment team. And they suddenly think, oh, this person needs to see that. And those sort of collaborations, they're now being copied in other states. So uh, there are some interesting things happening, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. But I think the elder abuse stuff, the abuse of women in the home, older women, is really, are really hidden. And they're too ashamed to say it's their son doing it to them. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. So our very last question, we might just segue straight through, is what was the one most important thing that would make a change? And Joe has has asked answered answered hers. I I was just sneaking in a second one as well. But I think look, I think prevention is not unrelated to this question. Um, so what's the one thing, and Fiona in particular, what can we do to help see hug election package? Is the note that I have. So. <laughs> Yeah. So our website is oldertenants.org.au. I have a couple of copies of our federal election advocacy toolkit. So we have a whole heap of things that we're asking. One of them is raising the rate. I know, <laughs> Jenny, you're not you're not keen on raising the rate, but um, we think that we think that the the rate needs to be raised um, quite more significantly, and there needs to be a national housing strategy that addresses a lot of these issues. Um, we need to address gender inequality. Um, and so if you're interested in getting involved in that, I can give you some information on um, what encouraging people to contact their local members and their candidates and talk to them about housing. Because we think the more people that are in their faces talking about housing, the more they're going to take it seriously and it won't be hidden away um, or considered too big and too hard. There's a bunch of solutions out there. We just don't have the political will to actually implement them. Um, there's a lot of very smart people that have been doing a lot of research into this for a long, long time. And we're at the pointy end now, so um, it's time for us to start talking about it to our politicians and asking that they do something and don't just clutch their pearls and, and raise awareness. Raising awareness is really important, but it's not enough. We need to take the next step. Um, so we have some election asks for the federal election and then in the state election in Victoria, we'll be doing the same thing. So um, jump on board our website and we're happy to talk. All of us um, from HAG are very keen to get some action with our politicians this election. So that's what I think we should do. Excellent. Okay, it's not and something that we can all do, as you say. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what's the question? What is the one most important thing that would make a change? Can I be cheeky and do three? But I'll do them oh, quickly. Come on, you're an ex <laughs> academics. They oh. never stop. Oh, no, really, really quick. Okay, number one, way more social housing. Yep. Thirty thousand new social housing dwellings every year for the next twenty years. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> just build it. Number two, increase Commonwealth rental assistance. And number three, I think, I haven't seen the research yet, but I suspect that a biggest like peak in homelessness for older women that we're going to see is in regional areas because COVID, everyone moved from mm. the city to the regional areas. We should tax people who own holiday homes in regional areas because they're decimating housing affordability. And we should be looking into how we can respond in those places. And what's some what and so those are really fabulous big picture things. What's something that we all here can do when we go home today? Jump on Hag's website. Jump on. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think so. I think um, it's important to go for the people that have portfolios, but also to the local members. And sympathy is great, but they need to actually take a step and do something about it. Ask them what they're going to do in Cabinet. Ask them which colleagues they're going to speak to. Ask them what's the best way to influence their colleagues on this issue. If they're already sympathetic, then they've, that's great. How can they help us to help, to help them get the story up? Okay. I think there are about 50 things I could say are the one thing. You've got to do. <laughs> but I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the experience from the other side. Um, there are so many demands and, and you're faced with, you know, NDIS and disability and the, uh, it is it keeps you awake at night. One of the things I say to people is don't go to people just before the election. 
I mean, you can do that. But after the election, you've got all these newbies who nobody asks to go to see anything. You know, they're sitting there hoping somebody will come. And you go and say to them, come and see what we're doing. Don't ask them for money because they can't get it. But educate. I say this to the scientists. Nobody ever invited me as a researcher to a research institute. And when I became health minister, they all wanted to see me. And, you know, short of my secretary said she was going to resign, short of sitting, seeing people when I was sitting on the toilet, she couldn't fit any more appointments in. And, I, and so I said, why didn't you come before? We didn't know you were going to be health minister. No, but you need someone around the cabinet table who will support you, even if they're not, you're not the health minister. So the important thing is going to the local member and taking somebody to tell the story, saying, I had this person that came to me, this is the situation she was in, and we couldn't help her. How could you think that you can nudge your colleagues? I don't know whether you've ever taken a person to tell their story. Tell sure I have. Some of them are here. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's what's got to happen because they most probably don't bump up against people who are homeless or some of their friends are at risk of homelessness, but they're not going to even identify that. Yeah. So I think going and seeing your local councillor, your local member, your local after the election, beforehand, but also afterwards, and get them involved and get them to see that there are some solutions. I think that's important because other people are there at the door every day. I'll tell you, the Pharmacy Guild, I thought it, I, every time I saw a yellow and blue tie, I almost had a Skinnerian reaction. And in fact, Biden had one on the other day. I thought, God, he's joined the Pharmacy Guild. So they are there. They're the best lobby group in Australia. And we've got to be the best lobby group for older people and for people at risk of homelessness. But, you know, and that's what you've got to do. I, I don't necessarily call them independence. He who pays the piper calls the tune. <laughs> well, once they're in, especially if they've got a, a bargaining chip, if there's two of them controlling the balance of power, then you've got to go to them pretty quickly. But they're overwhelmed. You know, I've yeah. seen them walk out and crying because they can't... They get extra staff, but it's just... It's a very difficult situation. But they're not powerful unless they've got the balance of power. Okay. I think we can... Um... It's nice to have a former student in the audience. Great. <laughs> Sophie. Makes me feel 155. And sprightly with it. <laughs> yeah, she's not bad, is she? Oh, pretty good. Sophie, do you want to tell us about these banners quickly? They're quotes from the book. From the yeah. paper. Thank you. Am I on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so we've just um, released or published, launched our um, design guide for older women's housing. It was a collaboration between um, Monash University XYX Lab and my um, architecture practice. And we interviewed seven women from social housing and community housing through for the, that research project. And these are all quotes from um, the women uh, through our research. And then the, there's little, um, some beautiful sketches around the place by Sam Donnelly, who was my fellow co-author. It's a great paper. Yeah, thank you. So putting the stories very visibly in the public realm with, in a, in a kind of quiet way, I think is really also very interesting. It's not putting the pressure, not everyone wants to speak publicly, but they can tell their story in other ways. It seems very And it's powerful. not getting your clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> it's not getting your clothes off. 
Not getting clothes off, Kay. Okay, well. I think we can devolve into general chit chat. So, shall we just all thank our speakers very much? Um, thank Tanya, Sophie, and Sam for putting the session together. Um, I hope that some of you will be back tomorrow lunch, uh, Tuesday lunchtime for the City of Melbourne um, discussion, where to next, alternative housing options. I hope lots of you will be here Wednesday evening for the Parlour Salon, which is an informal chat between um, architect Eloise Atkinson, who is involved in a lot of housing, and Charlotte Dillon, who is a community housing manager. And um, then on Friday evening, we have Designing Homes for Older Women uh, with Amanda Donohoe, Jeanette Large, Sam Donnelly, Sophie and Tanya will be out of lockdown. So um, thank you all for coming. Please. They're all held here. <laughs> Am I on? Yep. Please stay for afternoon tea afternoon on tea. us. Yes. Afternoon tea. I'm going to go over there right now. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>